Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys. Welcome to the Lifeboat Hour. Friday, September 4, 2015, as we approach the end of summer, but not only the end of summer, the end of many other things that my guest and I are going to be talking about today. However, reality dictates that the end of one thing is always the beginning of something else. And for the next hour, we're going to be talking about what the current economic meltdown signals the end of, and also what new beginnings we are entering alongside all of the other endings. Now, next week on this show, September 11, we will have a very natural sequel to today's show as Jenna Orkin returns to the Lifeboat Hour to discuss with me Mike Rupert's many years of analysis of 9-11 and Jenna's personal experience of being in Manhattan on that day that changed everything. I'll be playing some audio clips of Mike talking about 9-11, and you'll be able to call in and talk with Jenna just as you'll be able to call in today and ask a question or make a comment. And the number, as always, is 888-874-4888. My guest today is Richard Heinberg, who needs no introduction to most of you because he's been on the Lifeboat Hour, I think, more than once when Mike Rupert was hosting, and many of you have read some or all of his books. You know him as an internationally famous author, environmentalist, educator, and let us not forget, violin player. I'm not going to give a lengthy introduction other than to mention some of the books Richard has written, which include The Party's Over, Power Down, Peak Everything, The End of Growth, and his most recent, Afterburn. We are indeed fortunate today to have this very busy man with us on the show again. So, Richard, welcome back to the Lifeboat Hour. Richard, uh, we heard that you hung up, uh, and so you're back with us, right? <laughs> yeah, somehow your system dropped me off, and, uh, and I've, I've called back a couple of times. Anyway, here we are. Okay, thank you so much, Richard, for calling back and being persistent. Uh, I was just introducing you to our guests. Uh, I'm going to start over. Um, first of all, if you want to call in and ask Richard Heinberg a question or make a comment, uh, the number is 888-874-4888. Most of you need no introduction to Richard because he's been on the Lifeboat Hour, I think, more than once when Mike Rupert was hosting, and many of you have read some or all of his books. You know him as an internationally famous author, an environmentalist, educator, and, of course, a violin player. I'm not going to give a lengthy <laughs> <course>. introduction <laughs> other than to mention some of the books that Richard has written, Parties Over, Power Down, Peak Everything, The End of Growth, and his most recent, Afterburn. We are very unfortunate indeed to have this very busy man on the show once again, so Richard, welcome back to the Lifeboat Hour. Oh, thank you so much, Carolyn. Very good to be with you. Uh, yeah, I appreciate your taking time, and uh, I want you to take plenty of time for the answers to the questions I'm going to ask you today. I have a lot of them, uh, and hopefully we'll have some callers who have questions as well. 
First Good. of all, uh, we're all pretty familiar with the concept of the great turning, but in the introduction to your latest book, Afterburn, you introduce the concept of the great burning. Please tell us what that is and why it's important. Right. Well, um, the, the, uh, the, the industrial era which has changed human society so profoundly was based on the burning of fossil fuels. Um, we probably would have had some kind of industrial revolution if it hadn't been for fossil fuels, but it certainly wouldn't have been on a scale even approaching what's actually transpired. So how much, um, how much burning is actually going on? Uh, it, it takes a, a bit of math and, and research to, to put it all together. Uh, but most of that burning is taking place out of sight and out of mind. You know, it's not like we have big bonfires in the middle of the streets. Uh, what we have are, are little fires in our automobile engines, in the furnaces that heat our homes, in the, in the factories that spew out all the products that we, we buy. If you add all of that fire together, it turns out it's really an amazing conflagration, unlike anything that's ever happened before in all of Earth history. Just looking at, uh, at the United States, um, the amount of energy that we burn through fossil fuels on an annual basis is just about equal to the total amount of energy that's taken up by all of green plants, uh, again, annually. So all of the trees, all of the food crops, all of the weeds and grass and, and algae and ponds, all of that, all of, all of the energy captured from sunlight by all of green nature just about equals the amount of energy that we burn in terms of ancient sunlight captured by mostly plants uh, that lived tens of millions of years ago. So there's no way we could keep up this current rate of combustion uh, just using, you know, biofuels and, and, and uh, other kinds of, of uh, you know, plant material on, on a, a direct annual basis. So we've gotten ourselves into a, a, a pretty remarkable bind. Um, and, of course, burning all of this ancient plant material is releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, changing the, changing the planetary atmosphere, the chemistry of the atmosphere, producing climate change. Uh, so the great burning is something that's it's a one-time-only event in all of human history. It's, when all is said and done, it's not going to end up taking that much time, maybe two or three hundred years at, at, at the most, for us to run through uh, tens of millions of years' worth of collected ancient sunlight. Uh, but in the process, we're making the Earth a different place. Um, you know, we've cut, cut down about half the trees that were uh, present before uh, civilization. Uh, we've extracted uh, the fossil fuels and burned them. We've increased our population many, many times over, up to about 7.3 billion of us today. And it's all based on uh, a, a set of practices that is completely unsustainable, something that our ch great-grandchildren simply won't be able to do 
if if in, indeed they're they're around to even attempt to do it. Right. So it's it's an, a, a remarkable moment in history, and uh, it, it I think it's really important for folks to sit back and and see the big picture and understand what a perilous situation this puts us in, and uh, and you know what also at the same time what we've accomplished with all of this burning. It's you know we've created the uh, the world's first truly global civilization. We've invented all kinds of um, devices, including uh, computers and the Internet and, and all, all of the rest of this that enable us to be talking right now and reflecting on all of this. We can see the Earth from space, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, what an amazing time. And so that should, should hopefully that should get us thinking, you know, what are we going to do now? Because we can't assume that the future is going to be a, just a replay of, of what we've done over the past few decades. Thank you so much for that very complete and very mind-boggling answer. I really appreciate your honesty, and uh, there's no way the future can be the same as it has been. Yeah. Now, in Afterburn and several of your previous books, uh, you know, I don't have to tell our listeners that you've written extensively about oil depletion and peak oil. But right now we're seeing oil prices much lower than a year ago, and people like Daniel Jurgen are chuckling and telling us, see, we told you peak oil was a hoax. What do you think <laughs> is going on, Richard? Does this disprove the notion of impending oil scarcity? Uh, no, uh, there's definitely been a new wrinkle in the story as a result of uh, the high oil prices we were seeing a few years ago. You know, uh, oil prices hit almost $150 a barrel in 2008 and helped cause the financial crisis of, of that year. And then once the economy started to uh, recover, quote, unquote, the price of oil uh, leapt back up to about $100 a barrel and stayed there for four or five years. And with oil prices so high, that created the incentive for the industry to go out and drill for some of the least inviting uh, prospects that geologists knew about, including uh, the tight oil that's present in North Dakota and South Texas and a few other places, uh, using, of course, uh, hydrofracturing and horizontal drilling. Uh, again, these, these prospects were, were generally understood to exist um, prior to the, the last decade, but uh, oil companies thought, well, you know, why bother with that stuff? when there are, there are better things, cheaper uh, prospects to drill. Well, those cheaper prospects have all been drilled out. What's, what's left is deep water oil, tight oil, tar sands, Arctic oil. Those are the only um, future prospects that are, that are still on the table. But high oil prices made it possible to, to go after at least some of those, and that's what caused the tight oil boom, along with low interest rates that enabled companies to take on enormous amounts of debt so they could uh, uh, lease land and, and drill and frack. But um, they, they drilled so much so fast that they managed to glut the market. And, of course, there's still persistent global economic weakness. 
And so demand has demand for oil and oil products has pretty much leveled off or even declined in places like Europe and, and North America. The only real increase in demand in the last few years has been in uh, Asia, mostly China. And now China is starting to, to uh, slow down pretty dramatically. Maybe we can talk about that more later. So we have uh, flat or declining demand for oil and increasing production. So that, that's what created the, uh, the opportunity for the, the current oil glut and the lower prices. But the, the lower prices, while they're good for the U.S. economy in general, it's definitely good for uh, automakers, it's good for the airlines, uh, and so on, it's really terrible for the oil industry. And um, actual costs of production of oil have been skyrocketing in recent years, uh, in most years by over 10% annually. So costs of production are up. Oil prices are down. That spells doom for, for many oil companies, especially the smaller ones that have specialized in either uh, tar sands or tight oil. So we, we're already seeing U.S. Um, oil production, which had been soaring in recent years, uh, is now uh, starting to—excuse <coughs> me—starting to plateau out and decline. Um, U.S. oil production is down by about 300,000 barrels a day since its its peak in April. So uh, this. Uh, we at, at Post Carbon Institute uh, believe is the beginning of uh, a long-term trend. Even without the decline in prices, we would have seen uh, U.S. tight oil production peak within the next year or two, probably 2016, maybe 2017. But with the low oil prices, uh, spending on uh, upstream production, uh, new projects, uh, new leasing, uh, uh, hiring of rigs and so on, all of that investment is way, way down. So that means inevitably uh, production will decline. Uh, it just remains to be seen how steep the decline will be and, uh, and you know, where will we be by, let's say, 2020? Will we be down by a million barrels a day, two, three, four million barrels a day? Um, most likely, I would say, a couple of million barrels a day. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty between now and 2020. So you have directly tied in the oil production with the economic current situation. Uh, one of the things I'd like you to talk about is the definition of tight oil. But, you know, sure. we all know from reading the end of growth that you're highly skeptical of economic growth. And we know not just from what you say, but from what we're actually seeing all around us, that the attempts to have uh, infinite growth on a finite planet is over. So I'd really like you to comment not just on the theory of the end of growth, but on what we're actually seeing right now around those issues. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in 2008, we had a, a real wake-up call. And there was actually uh, <coughs> discussion about uh, the long-term viability of economic growth and and capitalism, you know, even in mainstream publications like Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and so on. 
Um, the solution for that that little uh, economic or financial hiccup, of course, was uh, the uh, the bailing out of whole industries, uh, ins- large insurance companies, banks, uh, General Motors, uh, lowering interest rates practically to zero to make it easier for uh, companies and, and households to borrow more money. Uh, we saw quantitative easing, uh, um, uh, the Federal Reserve and other central banks uh, creating money out of nothing to, to buy uh, government uh, bonds and, and other financial instruments uh, to help both the banks and to help governments to take on more debt. So these, you know, all together, this was an enormous effort. We were talking about many, many trillions of dollars that were deployed to keep the economy from uh, from imploding in a in a deflationary default cycle. Well, all of that worked up to a point. You know, the the sky didn't fall. Uh, many countries saw uh, uh, further growth. In the United States. Uh, pulled out of of the recession, jobs were created. Now we could talk about how much of that was was actually, you know, a real economic activity and how much was was uh, sort of uh, gaming the statistics. But nevertheless, you know, it's clear that we're we're not in the same kind of dire situation that we were in in let's say January 2009. But those those tactics, uh, the low interest rates, quantitative easing, and so on, have pretty much played out. Uh, Federal Reserve is talking about in, increasing interest rates now. The, the QE is, is has tapered off to nothing, and and we're seeing signs on the horizon of uh, a re-entry into in a, a kind of financial. Uh, danger zone. Uh, Wall Street, of course, is uh, Dow Jones has been very um, volatile over the last uh, couple of weeks, mostly as a result of news from China. China had been the one country everybody could count on to continue growing at spectacular rates. You know, China had been growing at 10% per year. Uh, then it slowed down to only 7% per year. But now it looks like the Chinese economy is basically dead in the water. Uh, their exports are flat to declining. Manufacturing is flat to declining. Energy consumption in China is flat to declining. So even if they're still talking about 7% uh, GDP growth, um, the evidence really isn't there for any real GDP growth at all in China currently. So, of course, that has the Chinese markets spooked. Uh, same thing in Europe, real uh, uh, danger signals about the future of the European economy, not only from the Greece uh, debt uh, problems, but other uh, other countries in, in southern Europe. Meanwhile, you know, the, the, uh, the efforts that were put into containing the last financial crisis have actually created the conditions for more of the same. Uh, in 2008, global debt was measured at $155 trillion, which was you know, historically remarkable uh, high level of, of debt in relation to global GDP. 
Well, in 2015, global debt is $200 trillion. So we didn't mm-hmm. solve the underlying problem that led, helped lead to the crisis of 2008. We've, we've actually made matters worse, in, uh, at least by that, that one measure. And if you have, on one hand, very high unsustainable levels of debt, and on the other hand, an energy system that's starting to come apart, which is, I'm talking about the, the oil industry, and oil is, is our most important energy source. It's virtually all of transportation. Transportation is at the heart of trade. We no longer have a situation where there's an oil price that works for both producers and consumers. So either producers are going to get hammered, as is happening right now, or consumers get hammered by high oil prices. There's no Goldilocks price that enables the system to continue functioning the way it did throughout the 20th century. So, again, this looks like we're, we're set up for another um, financial and economic um, uh, I, don't know if the word crash is appropriate because it's, it's unclear whether this would be something that would unfold rapidly and dramatically or in a more slow-motion slow way. But one way or another, it appears that the, the, the recovery, uh, the, the bit of growth that we've seen since 2008, probably was uh, engineered over the short term and can't, uh, can't uh, continue much longer. Well, thank you so much for all of that, Richard. And folks listening, please call us. If you have a question or comment, the lines are open. You can call us at 888-874-4888. And please visit Richard's website at richardheinberg.com, where you can read many of his articles, order his books, and contact him. You can also visit the website of Post Carbon Institute. Uh, with which which Richard I believe actually founded and uh, learned much well, more. Not, I didn't actually found the Post Carbon Institute, but I've been associated with it from its, okay. From its okay. beginning. Okay, thanks for yeah. clarifying. Uh, anyway, you can read much more about what Richard is saying if you go to the Post Carbon website or to his w- website at richardheinberg.com. So, Richard, uh, you and I and and many folks uh, highly aware of peak oil and climate change for many years have been critical of writing things about consumerism. Uh, You devote a chapter in Afterburn to discussing consumerism, and, and what we're seeing right now is not a rise in consumerism, but a global deflationary depression, as uh, I believe Nicole Foss uh, labels it, where consumption is down slightly or a lot, depending on what aspects of consumption we're talking about. So can you talk to us a bit about all of this? Yeah. Well, I think it's important for folks to have a a historic uh, understanding of consumerism uh, because often environmentalists see consumerism as just kind of a a frame of mind. uh, and, And if we can just change people's frame of mind from being consumers to being conservers, then, uh, you know, the world will be a better place and we can solve all these environmental problems and so on. Um, well, that is, that's true up to a point, but it ignores the, the historic and systemic aspects of, of consumerism, which I, I try to outline in, in that chapter that you mentioned. 
consumerism really was a response to the uh, the problems of the early 20th century. Uh, then we had lots of cheap energy, uh, uh, energy in quantities and uh, affordability that had never existed before. And so uh, manufacturers got busy applying all of that cheap energy to the manufacturing of more and more stuff using powered mining machinery, powered uh, assembly lines, and, and all the rest. And the result was, was a glut of consumer products, uh, overproduction. It's one of the things that led to the Great Depression. Uh, and during the Depression, of course, factories were idled, people were laid off because uh, it, the, the system just couldn't absorb all of, all of the, um, the products that could so easily and cheaply be, be churned out. Well, the, the response of, uh, of American manufacturers was to create a new mode of economic uh, production, which we we call consumerism, and it's it has to do with advertising. That's that's one big leg of consumerism, talking people into wanting more stuff. And of course, at the advertising industry maybe existed back in the year 1900, but it has grown um, dramatically in the in the decades since, to the point now where. Uh, you know, advertising is basically what keeps the internet going. Newspapers, magazines, uh, uh, television—it's uh, you know—it's a, um, a trillion-dollar industry globally. So, advertising was part of the of the answer. Another part was consumer credit, making it easier for people to go into debt to buy more stuff. And this links in with with the discussion we were just having. Because over the course of the last few decades, debt has grown at around three times the pace of GDP growth. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, in order to keep the, the consumer machine going, uh, it was necessary for people to go into more and more debt, to buy more and more stuff, to create more jobs, to keep us from going into a deflationary depression like we had back in the 1930s. Uh, this was the Cain part of the Keynesian solution. Uh, so we've had uh, more and more debt, uh, more and more money being created through debt to buy more and more goods, and the result has been a, an economy based on uh, the requirement for ever-increasing rates of, of consumption. 70% uh, of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. So if consumer spending goes up, that's good news, um, and the result is more jobs, more economic growth, everybody's happy. If consumer spending goes down, uh, horror of horrors, everyone uh, you know, is very unhappy, the stock market goes down, people lose money, people lose jobs, and so on. But of course, the reality is we live on a finite planet with only so many resources. We can't continue increasing population and consumption uh, forever. Uh, at some point, we, we reach the limits to growth, and those are not you know, centuries away. Uh, the study done back in 1972 was you know, still the, the, uh, the landmark 
in, in that regard, it, it, its um, uh, standard run scenario showed a peaking and decline in world industrial output sometime in the first half of the 21st century, which is you know kind of where we are right now. And all the signs point to uh, that that slowdown and turnaround, and ultimately uh, decline in global industrial production, also in global human population, food production, and, and so on. We're just about at, the, at that inflection point. So consumerism, which has been the engine of economic health for the, certainly not the United States and, and most of the rest of the world, <clears throat> is turning to poison. You know, the longer, <clears throat> the longer we uh, try to maintain ourselves on that treadmill of increasing uh, consumption, the closer we get to the cliff. Uh, and our only hope of avoiding a, a, a real uh, nasty collision with, with uh, natural limits is to uh, invent something better than consumerism to organize our, our, our economy around. And we've got to do it fast, and we've got to do it uh, smart, because we don't have that much time left. Well, uh, you know, on this show and in all of my work, I never talk about solutions because I'm not sure there are any, but I do talk <laughs> a lot about options. Yeah. So in another chapter in Afterburn uh, entitled All Roads Lead to Local, you argue that the trend toward globalization is unsustainable, as you just uh, just talked about in a moment ago, and our economies are about to become more localized again. So let's talk about this, because most of our listeners are completely on board with this concept. Yeah. What should we be doing right now in terms of localization? Well, um, first, the, the reason we feel uh, localization is inevitable has to do with uh, a lot of the things we've just been talking about, uh, replacing oil as a transport fuel is going to be very, very difficult. We're not going to do it with biofuels. We may have electric cars, but we're not going to have electric 18-wheel trucks and ships, container ships, and uh, aviation is going to be just a nightmare. So the, the reality is, as the, as the fossil fuel era wanes, we will be less mobile. Now, how much less, I don't know. Um, you know, a lot, there are a lot of unknowns in all of this. But in, in our analysis, we just don't see a realistic possibility for maintaining current levels of mobility as we transition away from fossil fuels, either voluntarily to avert climate change or inadvertently as a result of uh, fossil fuel depletion. So if we're less mobile, that means globalization can't proceed, you know, we just can't keep loading up more and more container ships of, of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> so that being the case, how do you localize in a systematic uh, way where, you know, you don't just crash and burn? Um, well, you do that through import substitution, finding ways to produce more locally rather than depending upon uh, distant producers. And, of course, the best place to start that is with 
food because food, of course, is, is our most important product. We can do without um, the latest smartphone, but we can't do without uh, too many breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. So growing more of your own food is a really sound strategy to begin to localize your own personal existence and to do that in collaboration with others in, in your community, building uh, a local food shed. We've, at Post Carbon Institute, we've actually published a series of books on the subject, Rebuilding the Food Shed, How to Create Local, Sustainable, and Secure Food Systems, by Philip Ackerman Least. That's, that's one of our books in that series. We also have a book on uh, local energy, uh, Power from the People, by Greg Paul, and a book called Local Dollars, Local Sense, How to Shift Your Money from Wall Street to Main Street, uh, by Michael Schumann. So localizing first uh, our food system, localizing our energy, uh, producing more, especially renewable energy locally, uh, and then localizing investments so that uh, all of our local money isn't just ending up in, in the pockets of Wall Street bankers and, and hedge fund managers. Uh, these, we, we see these as the three uh, key areas to start with. Once we have more uh, dollars remaining locally rather than heading out of town, then there's more, um, more capacity to build uh, local manufacturing and, and other elements of, of a local economy. So uh, tell us again the web address of Post Carbon Institute. I believe it's .org, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's postcarbon.org. Okay, and there you can order these books, these wonderful books, actually, that Richard is talking about. Um, could you just list them again, please? Sure. Uh, that's Rebuilding the Food Shed by Philip Ackerman Least. Uh, Local Dollars, Local Sense by, and that's S-E-N-S-E, -E, of course, by Michael Schumann. And... Uh, Power from the People by Greg Paul, P-A-H-L. Very good. Now, Richard, the realities um, that you've been writing and talking about for many years are pretty scary, and you've never tried to fluff pillows and make us comfortable. But in Afterburn, you talk about the cooperative Darwinian moment. What is that exactly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know... This, how things will unfold from here is inevitably uh, speculative. Right. But um, you know, it's possible to imagine a wide range of futures. You know, uh, there, there, there are plenty of folks who understand the issues that we've just been talking about, who foresee nothing but uh, collapse and ruin and uh, 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 resource wars, famine, uh, et cetera, for as far as the eye can see until, you know, the human population is either completely eradicated or has declined to the point where there are maybe only two or three hundred million survivors. That's a possible future. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we are an incredibly cooperative species, 
And evolution has proceeded as much by cooperation as by competition. So how are we setting ourselves up now? Are we setting ourselves up to, to uh, uh, compete for the last crumbs of the, uh, of, of the industrial period, the last, the last goodies, uh, uh, industrial products and food and all the rest that uh, uh, we can commandeer as the, as the ship goes down? Or are we setting ourselves up to cooperate, to find uh, alternative ways of doing things, to reduce consumption in an in a organized way? Uh, the, the jury's out. I think it co- could go either way. But, you know, if, if we really want to uh, have a prosperous way down, as uh, Howard Odom uh, called it in his, in his last book, uh, then, you know, we, we've got to set ourselves up for that result by creating more cooperative institutions now, getting to know our neighbors, uh, learning uh, the, the skills of cooperation, because, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that, that happens automatically. Uh, we learn these, these skills through, through practice, by, uh, by uh, building cooperative institutions and working in cooperative institutions, even something like a local currency uh, or a local food co-op. Uh, these things take work to get going, and you could see them as just kind of a, it's a, a awfully puny response to the kinds of, of, of global uh, survival challenges we've been talking about. But these are the kinds of efforts that, that build uh, local resilience, build the skills at cooperation that could be the difference between a, uh, a, a dystopian future and a future where, uh, you know, of course we're headed for hard times, but, but a future where we not only survive, but also preserve the best of what we've achieved in these last couple of hundred years. Okay, well, that gives me a clearer picture. You know, I live in Boulder, Colorado, and Boulder in the process, in the moment is in the process of transitioning from uh, from the local power company, Xcel Energy, to uh, running the entire city on solar. And I yeah. don't know if that can happen or how successfully that can happen over the next few years, but uh, that's one example. It's a larger scale example than what you're talking about with the food co-ops and the local food sheds and so forth. But, um, you know, I, I think if any little communities or larger communities can do that, um, I think all the more power to them, no pun intended. Yes. Yeah, we're doing the same thing here in, in Sonoma County. Uh-huh. Uh, we've created a, a, um, an organization, nonprofit, uh, Sonoma Clean Power, which uh, is competing directly with Pacific Gas and Electric, and um, uh, and this is happening in more and more uh, counties and cities throughout California, because the legal structures were created at the state level level to enable this to happen. So now Sonoma Clean Power sells um, uh, power, cheaper power to its, its customers than PG&E does, uh, which creates the incentive to switch over. And for those who want to, they can pay a little bit more and, and get um, all renewable energy. Now, of course, all, all renewable electricity is, um, means probably 
uh, you know, paying to have somebody across the country operate wind turbines and and uh, and solar panels, uh, and uh, and so there's you know it's a it's a bit of a symbolic exercise in a way, but nevertheless it results in more uh, renewable energy capacity being created uh, at the end of the day and. Uh, uh, and those who want to want to see that happen have have a way of helping it happen. So, Richard, uh, I'm going to throw a kind of uh, curveball question here, uh, more philosophical. Uh, I personally do not see any possibility of reversing climate change at this point. And as you may know, last year I co-authored a book with Guy McPherson entitled Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. And the focus of my part of the book was on how to live in the time that we have left, however long or short that time might be. Um, so if climate change is irreversible or if the way down eliminates much of our species or if our species cannot be spared from extinction, how do you think we should be living? Well, um, obviously, I think we should be treasuring each moment that we have here on this earth right. and, and spending our time uh, being... Uh, sort of amused to death by uh, corporate media, um, I think is a waste of, of a precious opportunity. Uh, I choose to spend a lot of my time, of course, you know, my, my daily work is, uh, involves uh, paying attention to these kind of dismal statistics about the global economy, energy, climate, and, and so on. So when I'm not doing those things, I choose to spend my time either in in nature um, in our our backyard with uh, with with gardens and fruit and nut trees and 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 our chickens or with um, art and music um, I think we've achieved some very beautiful things as human beings over the last uh, few hundred and even few thousand years um, and uh, I, if we have anything to be proud of as a species, I think it's it's that. So there, I think there's a real possibility of the loss of much of that achievement, much of that beauty, not only as a result of climate change, but uh, as a result of uh, economic trends that are that are underway. Uh, I play. You mentioned I play violin earlier. Yeah, I, I play chamber music mostly. Um, uh just played at a restaurant last night we we played a uh, with a string trio we played a, uh, a beautiful arrangement of the Bach Goldberg variations this is one of the mm. one of the treasures masterpieces yeah. of of western music mm. and well, uh well i also hear you have a wonderful a very beautiful version of uh, Ashokan farewell can you tell us about that and tell us a little <laughs> bit about the background of that piece a Shokin farewell? Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. Well, that was um, uh, written by a friend of mine, Jay Unger, who's a fantastic musician. He, he he's often uh, pigeonholed as just a, 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 a fiddle player, but he's a <clears throat> he's also a jazz violinist and, and composer. Uh, and uh, he and his wife run a, a fiddle camp up in around Woodstock, New York which I've had the pleasure of attending. 
and uh, wonderful, wonderful people show up to, to, you know, just be together for a week or so at a time and uh, and play, uh, you know, traditional jazz or or roots music and. Uh, it's a great scene because, again, you know, when when we get together to celebrate the best of of what we do uh, as human beings, we can we can be a pretty marvelous species. Well, your friend who wrote a Shokun farewell uh, that that was used in the Ken Burns Civil War series. I, I right. thought that was a very very old tune that Ken Burns dug up from the 19th century, but I guess not, huh? No, Jay wrote it in the in the late 1980s. Wow. It's gorgeous and uh, yeah. so compelling and, and haunting and, uh, you know, one of my favorite things in the whole world. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that and for giving us some balance, some perspective about how we should be living our lives and, and the beauty that we should be appreciating and the creativity yeah. that we should be exercising and enjoying. Uh, it's so important. Well, you've written an essay titled, Want to Change the World? Read this first. So tell us about that essay and what message you'd like to leave with young readers. Yeah, that's, that's the last essay in, uh, in Afterburn, and it is written especially with, with younger readers in mind. Young people often you know, want to change the world, and uh, we live in a time where that's not only uh, going to be increasingly possible, but increasingly inevitable. <laughs> the world yeah. is going to be changing profoundly in the next, uh, even just the next couple of decades. Uh, our financial system, as it is currently configured, cannot continue much longer. Our food system, our transport system, you go on through, through the list. You know, every, every system that we created to support modern industrial societies requires a fundamental redesign at this point. As we move toward renewable energy, uh, the energy was responsible for building the industrial world, a certain kind of energy, and we built our world around fossil fuels. Whether you think about the way we design our houses around our garages, which are you know little houses for our cars, the way we design our cities, you know, on and on and on. All of that's going to change as our energy sources change. We will design our lives around very different energy sources with very different characteristics. It's all up for grabs. In that chapter, um, I talk about one of my uh, intellectual uh, mentors, actually, and I was happy to have the opportunity to do that. And that is the, the late uh, anthropologist Marvin Harris, who taught at uh, uh, University of Florida in Gainesville. Marvin Harris was um, an anthropologist who uh, I think really understood and codified for the first time how societies, how and why societies change. His uh, realization was that all societies have three basic uh, elements, uh, which he called infrastructure, which is how they, how they relate with the natural world, how, how they get the basic food and energy that makes life possible. So there's infrastructure, then there's the structure, which is the social 
uh, element of society, how people make decisions together, how do, how do they divide up the, the stuff that they have, what are the rules that, uh, that, uh, um, by, by which they have leadership positions or uh, basically government and the economy. And then there's the superstructure, which is the idea sphere, how they explain it all to themselves, whether it's um, um, philosophy or religion or mythology. Every society has all three of these things. And Harris's insight was when, when the infrastructure changes, that's when the whole of society undergoes profound transformation. We tend to think of it the other way, that you know, it's ideas that change the world. Well, yeah, that's true. Uh, ch- change can come at any of these levels. Uh, they can come at the level of politics in the, in the structural sphere or the idea uh, in the idea sphere of the uh, superstructure. But when the infrastructure of a society changes, when people change how they get their food, going, for example, from hunting and gathering to growing their food or moving from an agrarian society to an industrial society, then the whole society uh, changes, uh, the politics change, ideas change, and everything else has to rebalance accordingly. Well, here we are at the beginning of an infrastructural shift that's as profound as the move from hunting and gathering to uh, agriculture, or it's as profound as the Industrial Revolution. As we move toward renewable energy, everything is going to change. So what an opportunity, if you happen to be a young person, to uh, survey this field and and decide, well, where do you want to devote your life? How, what kind of change, systemic change, do you want to devote yourself to? And whether it's in the food system or the, the financial system or whatever, there will be lots of opportunity for creativity, and that creativity could end up uh, you know, impacting lots of, lots of people. But one other lesson from from Harris in this is, you know, if you want to be successful in changing, then changing the world, then the kinds of proposals that you come up with have to be in line with the new infrastructure that we're, we're moving toward. If they're, if they're uh, you know, nice ideas in the context of a, uh, you know, the kind of industrial world that we're, we're familiar with now that's powered by fossil fuels and nuclear energy and so on, it's probably not going to fly. Uh, it, you know, it may be an idea to create more uh, economic equity or, or whatever, but if it, if it doesn't fit with the, the new infrastructure, it's not going anywhere. Thank you for that comment on want to change the world, read this first. So really important for young people and for all of us. So I'm wondering uh, what kind of projects you're involved with right now and anticipate being involved with in the future. Oh, I'm glad you asked. Um, (laughs) I'm working with uh, David Fridley, who is a scientist at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories, and is a um, an energy expert. Uh, he's currently working with uh, China in uh, in a, a very big uh, future energy project. 
that also involves the Rocky Mountain Institute. Um, <clears throat> well, David and I are, have have assigned ourselves the task of trying to understand how energy consumption is likely to change as we move toward a renewable energy future. And uh, most people, I think, who approach this question assume <clears throat> that it's just a matter of unplugging the coal power plants and plugging in uh, wind turbines and solar panels and then continuing with business as usual. But uh, our analysis suggests something very, very different that uh, these renewable energy sources do have very different characteristics. They're intermittent. Uh, they produce electricity, which is good because electricity is very uh, high-value, useful form of, of energy. But we only use electricity for about 20% of our total uh, final energy consumption in the United States, and it's, it's basically true elsewhere in the world as well. So the rest of our energy we're using for transportation, agriculture, manufacturing, making cement and steel, you know, the list goes on and on. And a lot of those things are going to be much more difficult to transition. You know, uh, if I could interrupt you, Richard, uh, we do have a caller, Lori, from Northern California, who has a comment. We have just a few minutes. Go ahead, yep. Lori. I will be very brief. Thank you so much. I love your guest. Uh, he's new to me. Um, I love his ideas and sharings about getting more localized. Uh, many people might realize the state of Jefferson has been a proponent to break away, uh, or not separate from the nation, but just to make California smaller. It's not being represented. We're going through a huge drought with the media not telling us it's really been eight years or longer. My concern question is your topic about food and storage and sharing. Right now, the food is so contaminated by the heavy metal spraying, uh, geoengineering, the uh, trees, the bark, the water it takes to grow fruit and nut trees. It's hard to enjoy anything right now when we go out and look at how baked and fried things are. So with respect to your um, offering for this essay you were sharing with the young people or interested parties, we might have to, as a species, learn to not live on so much food, maybe one meal a day, maybe go to some, some other form of um, existing, like what the breatharians talk about. It's extreme, but... I think if, if we just keep thinking we're gonna, we need three meals a day and as long as the uh, drive through fast food places are open, we think everything's just great. So I'm just concerned that um, we're that food option is, is contaminated. Uh, people don't believe we even have organics anymore, the GMO issue, and we're breathing this stuff. It's affecting our brains. So we're getting impacted that we're not going to make smart decisions real soon. So Thank I'm going to definitely look. look up your website stuff and, and get on board with what you're talking about. And do read his books. He has many, many wonderful books. Thank you, Lori. You bet. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that comment. So yes. um, do you have any more to say then about this future project in just a couple of moments? Sure. Um, well, th that's, that's one of the, uh, the areas, and that's, that will be a book that will be out uh, probably next spring, and it's, it's a major, major analytic product, and we hope to make it as reader-friendly as possible so that folks can pick up this book and get a, almost literally a picture of how life uh, could be in an all-renewable energy future. Uh, and we will have uh, lots of lots of scenario exercises in that. That's that's one project that we have going. The other is community resilience. I talked about our community resilience guides book series, but we're at, at Post Carbon Institute. We're also 
looking at uh, creating on-the-ground projects in collaboration with um, Community Action Partnerships, which is and, a... And can people um, find out about that at the website? I'm asking because we have just about one minute left. Oh, yeah, good. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to be in, uh, in, in your neck of the woods uh, in October, October 23 through 25. I'll be doing a workshop in Sebastopol on resilience in chaotic times. Uh, so just to let you know, and uh, that will be on my website. Uh, thank you so much, Richard, for being with us today. I so appreciate your being here out of your very busy schedule. I know it's tough. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Carolyn. And please join us again next week, everyone, when Jenna Orkin will be our guest. We'll be having some sound clips from Mike Rupert as we discuss 9-11. Thank you all for listening today. Have a good week. Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war.